Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome everyone on my podcast channel at the New Books Network. I am Kay Kalyani, Assistant Professor at Azim Premji University, Bangalore. Today we have with us Professor Scott Stroud. Uh, before we begin with the book discussion, uh, let me first introduce you all to the author. Scott R. Stroud specializes in the intersection between communication and culture. Working at the juncture of rhetoric and philosophy, much of his research extends the thought of the American pragmatist into the realms of rhetorical experience and political activity. He is particularly interested in the connections between artful communication, individual flourishing, religion, and democracy. His book, John Dewey and the Artful Life, engages with these themes in detail. His book, Kant and the Promise of Rhetoric, which has come out from Pennsylvania State University Press in 2014, provides a first-of-its-kind reprisal of Kant and his relation with the rhetorical tradition. Stroud's other work also engages topics in comparative non-Western rhetoric, religious rhetoric, narrative theory, and communication ethics. His research has been published in the in venues such as Rhetoric Society Quarterly, Philosophy and Rhetoric, Rhetoric and Public Affairs, the Journal of Communication and Religion, the Western Journal of Communication, Advances in the History of Rhetoric, and Journal of Speculative Philosophy. In 2014 and 15, he was visiting fellow at the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics at Princeton University. So welcome, Scott. Thank you for having me here, Kalyani. So uh, let me first briefly introduce the book that we are going to discuss today. Uh, We are here to discuss his latest and very popular book, The Evolution of Pragmatism in India, 
This book is published in US and Europe by University of Chicago Press and in India it is published by HarperCollins. The book is a philosophical engagement with Dr. Ambedkar's life and works through his intellectual engagement with Dewan pragmatism. His exploratory research has engaged with significant moments of Dr. Ambedkar's life and it has analyzed how they were reconstitutive and reconstructive of John Dewey's pragmatic tradition. While many of the biographical accounts have explored different facets of Ambedkar's life, this work has uniquely positioned Ambedkar's life journey through a philosophical and intellectual lens. The book has richness of archival linkage as well as it brings analytical appendage to think over what guided Ambedkar's thought and his entire caste discourse. While the work gives significant philosophical insight, it also opens up question as to what extent can Ambedkar's pragmatism be considered as unique and exclusive or was Ambedkar's rhetorical pragmatism a merely extended thought of John Dewey's philosophy itself? So let us explore some of these questions through our conversation again uh, ahead with uh, Scott. So uh, thank you, Scott, for joining the discussion. So before we begin our discussion, uh, can you briefly explain to our audience what interested you to engage with Dr. Ambedkar and his intellectual and philosophical roots in pragmatist tradition? What was your first encounter with Ambedkar as a philosopher? Also to the audience here who are new to Dewey's pragmatism, can you briefly explain to them what pragmatism means and the philosophical trajectories that it draws upon? Well, yes. Uh, so uh, the story starts way back in 2004 when I was a graduate student and I was hosting a conference at another university in the U.S. And Martha Nussbaum, a well-known American philosopher, you know, she, she was the keynote speaker and I was walking her from her car to make sure she gets to the spot where she has to give her keynote address. And she knew I was studying with Richard Schusterman, uh, an American pragmatist, and she knew I was writing a dissertation on John Dewey. You know, so she she strikes up a small conversation, and as life goes, these small conversations sometimes you know have huge echoes. So you know, she said, "Hey, have you ever heard of an Indian student of John Dewey's named Bimrao Ambedkar?" And I said, "No, I hadn't." And you know, in my mind, I kind of made note of his name, but I pushed it to the side because I was a graduate student. I was full of energy. I didn't know everything I know now, perhaps. And I wanted to focus on the guru, not the disciple. So, you know, I, I pushed on in my graduate program. I wrote a dissertation that became that first book you mentioned on John Dewey and art and aesthetics and morality. And, you know, I, I studied for almost a decade John Dewey's philosophy in, in philosophy proper in my field of rhetoric, where I'm based now. And, you know, I wrote a lot of things on John Dewey. So, so in 2014, though, you know, so 10 years after Martha Nussbaum had mentioned that to me, you know, I was supposed to be, I was on fellowship at Princeton. I was supposed to be writing a book on Dewey and criticism, 
rhetorical criticism specifically. And like a lot of us do, I kind of procrastinated. So what I did was I remembered that name, Embedkar, you know, and I Googled that name, Embedkar, and I found Annihilation of Caste online. And that's, you know, a spot so many people start with Embedkar's thought. And I started reading it. And I started seeing Dewey and pragmatism in places where others hadn't seen it. And I see Embedkar refer to Dewey, his teacher, to whom he owes so much in that text. He says that. And, and so I started to say, you know, there, there's a story here. And I started looking at what other people had written on it. And I, I said, you know, no one's really dove into the details of this, if there's even any details there. And I said, maybe this will be something I can do and do at a decent level of quality, because I know a bit about Dewey. I had long been interested in Indian thought. Uh, you know, at that point, I'd studied for a month in Delhi and Jaipur with the Jains. And I, you know, written a few things on Jainism. I had long been interested in the Bhagavad Gita and Vedanta you know, and Shankara and Vivekananda. And so, so you know, I, I was interested in this connection between India and the U.S. You know, so I said, okay, let's, let's go into this. Now, before I, I say any more, you know, you, know you, you bring up a very important starting point, which is what is pragmatism? One of the exciting things about the Embedkar Dewey story is, is a lot of people know part of the story. So in America, everyone knows a little bit about Dewey, but not many people in America know about Baba Sahib and Bedkar. Uh, in India, it's kind of the opposite. A lot of people know about Embedkar, but not many people know about Dewey. Or if they do, they know something, you know, very simple, like pragmatism is all about practical things and doesn't have any philosophical depth. That's obviously a falsehood. Uh, but, you know, that's one common misconception of pragmatism. So, so you know, if I had to describe what pragmatism was, really it's, you know, there's a, a historical sense behind when we talk about pragmatism. You know, there's a historical sense of a collection of thinkers that arise after the American Civil War in America, and they start responding to each other, talking with each other, writing against each other. And this becomes this tradition of pragmatism. So you have figures like Charles Saunders Peirce, uh, you know, who has a very elaborate semiotic system and a logic system, and, and his works are still being published to this day. I mean, he died with some 40,000 unpublished pages, if I remember right. So, so he had an office full of stuff that's only now slowly coming out in print. William James was a friend of Peirce. They held a little reading group together, sarcastically called the Metaphysical Club because they weren't too excited about metaphysics, but they jokingly called it the metaphysical club. And so in the 1860s and 1870s, kind of the seeds of this pragmatism were germinating in Peirce and James. And William James would go on and write you know, incredibly important works in psychology. You know, he wrote The Principles of Psychology, one of the, the key texts in empirical psychology in the U.S. tradition in 1890. He would write incredibly important stuff on epistemology and truth and try to give a pragmatist reading of what truth means, you know, versus people that say, ah, it's eternal and timeless, or it comes from divine sources, or what we might call relativistic accounts of truth. So, so you get these thinkers like that. And John Dewey is one of these thinkers that starts writing in the 1880s, and he writes alongside of James. He and William James are corresponding. They were never a student-teacher relationship, but they were very respectful of each other's thought, and they differed on certain things. They overlapped on other things. They went different paths on other topics. So, so you get this loose collection of thinkers, and what American thinkers have done is they've expanded that beyond these three important 
original thinkers to include people like Jane Addams. Jane Addams was a friend and a correspondent uh, of John Dewey's. Dewey says, you know, her thought changed some important parts of his philosophy. So you get these W.E.B. Du Bois, an important figure uh, in civil rights in the U.S. and black thought in the U.S. He was a student of William James, and his thought has important connections and divergences from what he saw as important in people like James. So you get this incredibly complex set of thinkers in historical sense, that they're reacting to each other, they think differently from each other, but there's some kind of historical connection among these folks. There's also a conceptual sense of pragmatism. You know, if you want to say what kind of unifies all these thinkers, well, they're incredibly diverse thinkers. But, you know, some things that are common, they all had a great respect for experience. You know, the idea that our experiences differed among each other and our experiences mattered. And things like religion weren't a matter of being true or false. But for someone like William James, religion could improve our life or improve our communities, or it could do the opposite. Same for John Dewey. Uh, All the pragmatists thought community mattered, both in a political sense, they all pursued what they wanted to call democracy, and in an epistemological sense. Things like science worked to get us useful temporary truths because of a community of inquirers behind scientific inquiry. So pragmatism is an incredibly rich tradition And one of the important moves, and we'll talk about this more today, is I wanted to bring Embedkar into that story, you know, because we too often forget, uh, you know, women figures in that story, like Jane Addams or Mary Kingsbury Simcovich. We forget people of color in that story, such as Elaine Locke or W.E.B. Du Bois. And I believe Embedkar is also left out of that story, too. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, That was a brief but yet very rich history of uh, pragmatism that you told us. It's very interesting that you're talking about James Adams, Du Bois, and uh, how they were uh, looking into the uh, pragmatist approach. It was part of their reaction. It was part of their thinking together as well as diversely. So thanks for that brief introduction. So uh, from there, let me... uh, come to the next question. Uh, It was interesting to see uh, that uh, in your book, uh, when you are developing your argument uh, about Ambedkar's pragmatic pragmatic tradition, it is followed with a very rich footnote. And uh, you are very richly uh, and engagingly talking about how and where did Ambedkar actually encounter Dewey? For instance, citing uh, works of Arun Mukherjee's and Kia Mitra's work, you have begun by looking into Ambedkar as pragmatist from his early 1919 testimony of South Borough's committee report. Can you please talk about the archives that you looked into and the different sources that facilitated your interest to bring Ambedkar and Dewey's philosophical thoughts together? Yes, I mean, I was very lucky insofar as other people had written, uh, you know, in part on this Dewey and Bedcar connection. So back in 2014, when I first started looking into it, I was able to find some some quality scholarship that mentioned it or gave a paragraph on it or uh, a chapter. So for instance, uh, Mukherjee has a wonderful chapter from 2009. Kea Maitra had a wonderful chapter comparing these two. And then Mirananda, in her book, Prophets Facing Backwards, has a wonderful chapter on the Dewey and Buddha. And Chris, Christopher Queen has had a couple articles on this. So, so there was enough out there that you could kind of see that you can go deeper. 
But the challenge to me was how do you go deeper? So, so many of these great scholars, you know, and, and our you know, scholars are limited by who came before them and what textual matters they have in front of them. So, so many of these scholars were limited because the Embedkar texts had just been published as a complete set or fairly complete set in the around 1980. And they had been limited insofar as, you know, just there wasn't existing work to build upon before them on Dewey and Embedkar. So, so this scholarship was wonderful, but like all scholarship, it, it had its limits or it had its, you know, areas that it needed something to be added to it. So, so I, you know, one of the weaknesses I saw of a lot of the scholarship was they tended to set, start with the historical fact that Embedkar took classes from Dewey and that, you know, then you could look at Dewey's books and you could look at Embedkar's books and say, ah, here's something he must have learned from Dewey, or here's something that he di- didn't like in Dewey. So it's a very correlative method, right? Because Dewey wrote in his collected works, 38 volumes, and that's 8 million words of philosophy. Now, Embedkar did not hear all of that. And Embedkar's English works alone in the, the Baugh's edition are around four or five million words by my estimate. So, so you know, it's, it's in, there's a fraught maneuver there when you hold up something in Dewey and hold up something in Embedkar. Who knows if Embedkar heard that argument or that idea? Who knows if Dewey, you know, still believes something from his early years when he was in the classroom with Embedkar? So I wanted to go beyond kind of this correlation between these thinkers and try to figure out what exactly Embedkar heard or read from Dewey and how exactly did Dewey matter for Embedkar, right? Because, you know, Dewey believed a lot of things and Embedkar probably didn't hear a lot of those things, didn't care about some of those things. So how did it matter? So my method, you know, I'm a philosopher by my PhD training. So this is my first exam engagement with um, archival work. So, so I, you know, I went to India, I went to archives all over the U.S. trying to get into that classroom. If it was today, we could probably look on TikTok and see what Embedkar had for lunch and whatnot. But I mean, 100 years ago, how did Embedkar encounter John Dewey in Columbia? So, you know, you could find his transcript online. You could find the Columbia bulletins from those years online. So I identified the exact Dewey classes that Embedkar was in. Uh, Along the way, I found some other interesting facts. For instance, Hu Shur, the Chinese reformer who goes back to China and starts kind of a new version of pragmatism in China. Many people have written on this. Uh, Hu Shur was in the same class as Embedkar in 1915-1916 with John Dewey. So, you know, I go to places like the Dewey Center here in America at uh, Southern Illinois Carbondale. I find notes from that class. So I found, I've identified really, uh, notes from John Dewey that he prepared to lecture to Embedkar in fall of 1914. I found notes from Embedkar's classmates in 1915, 1916. And sure enough, a couple of days, those note takers were sick or otherwise indisposed. So who's a substitute note taker? The notes say notes by Embedkar. So, you know, in my book, and I go over this in laborious detail, I, I try to construct as as detailed a picture as possible of what part of Dewey Embedkar was exposed to. And I think that's absolutely key because we can say all kinds of things about these, you know, thinkers that had so many thoughts. Uh, but, you know, let's get beyond the correlations and, you know, saying they're not the same. Let's get into the actual details. What did Embedkar hear about Dewey? What did he like about Dewey? What did he resist in Dewey? Because that's a form of influence. I also tried to get into the classroom of John Dewey by looking at, um, you know, people who were in that class and what they thought about Dewey. You know, and so it's always fascinating to me. Embedkar 
looked up to John Dewey, but Dewey was by all accounts, an incredibly boring speaker. You know, he was, he, he was monotone and dull in class. His speeches were fairly boring. And Bedkar, of course, was a powerful speaker. He'd have audiences of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands listening to him for hours on end. And so, so you know, you look into these, these notes and these recollections by students of Dewey's and you start to get into that classroom a little bit. One recollection I found, and I, I go over this in a lot of detail in my first chapter, is absolutely new. And I think it's apocal. It shakes some of the stories we have of Embedkar. So I found a recollection from 1966 of a philosopher in her own right, Nima Adlerblum. Now, she was a student of Dewey's 1905 to 1926. Okay, and she was married to a man named Israel Adlerblum, who was a student of uh, Embedkar's advisor, Seligman. So she was around the campus when Embedkar was there. She lived a block or two away. She continued to go to the campus and go to the library even after she was done with courses and such. So anyway, in her recollection, it was just fascinating. It almost made my heart stop. I was reading through it, and she's talking about Dewey being boring. She's talking about uh, you know other students from Japan and China in Dewey's classes. And then she, in one paragraph, without naming anyone's name, starts talking about an Indian student a student from India who she saw daily. And I'll quote that passage because I think it's just absolutely fascinating. She says, there was a student from India whom I saw daily, always with a pen and paper. He was reading Dewey's articles. He recopied the class notes after each lecture. Whenever he read some to me, it felt as if I heard Dewey himself talking. This Indian student also showed me his attached comments, searching for a bridge between Dewey and Buddhism. Both, he said, aim at the highest morality, but Dewey's drive for a good society might be more conducive to happiness than nirvana. In the United States, this Indian student met Dewey who gave a new turn to his life. In infusing Dewey's concept of an idealistic democracy, he may be of some help in easing the ugly ingrained tradition of the untouchables, end quote. So I go over the whole paragraph uh, you know, and again, it doesn't name anyone's name in my book, but it, you know, it, this has to be referring to Embedkar. You know, no other Indian students were at Columbia that were following in Dewey's wake. And all the Indian students in the U.S. at the time were fixated on independence. But this student was fixated on untouchability. This student was fixated on Buddhism. This student was fixated on searching for a bridge between Dewey and Buddhism. So that really pushed me forward. And we'll talk some more about this book as we go on. But I mean, I th think about that idea, and that's totally new. No one's ever noticed this recollection before. And this idea of Embedkar as a young student wanting to combine Dewey and pragmatism, especially democracy, with Buddhism. It's absolutely phenomenal. That's really interesting, Scott. In fact, uh one can say it's like a philosophical encounter with the historical archive. But the way you are looking into archive is also very interesting because there is a very dynamic sense and uh, in which uh, you are actually imagining archives, like going beyond just uh, books or materials available to actual classroom spaces. Uh, so uh, one of the brief questions, if you can address here, is when you were actually looking into these materials, did you feel that there has been a negligence in previous writing to such kind of scattered archival materials that were there? Does it anyway reflect on negligence of uh, understanding Ambedkar discourse itself? No, I don't, I don't think I'd use the word negligence. I mean, the, you know, a, one of the things I should have said about pragmatism early on is that pragmatists tend to always be pluralists. 
That means they put up with tensions and contradictions in the messiness of life. So James thought a lot of religions had something to give you a value. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, I'm a pluralist. I'm a pragmatist. I'm a pluralist. And so many scholars are going to ask many different questions of Embedkar, and his thought will get pulled different ways. Uh, you know, the questions I was asking about him were really trying to get into his compositional process. Like what, what kind of drove him to create Annihilation of Caste the way he did, or another text the way he did? Uh, you know, what drove him to include some lines from Dewey in this text or that text and not others. And so, so I'm trying to get into his mind, in other words, and that's very hard because he's unfortunately dead and because his written works, you know, are a, an artifact, but there's so much more behind them. So like you say, I try to go into archives and look for drafts of what he's writing to see what he struck out, but considered putting in these, these texts. I've, I, you know, I've, I think I've looked through and held every book that survives from his library at all the different, you know, archives that hold these books, Malin College, Siddharth College, Rajgraha, Private Collectors, Symbiosis Institute. So, you know, and books are so important because they show you what he owned, but more importantly, if they have annotations, you can see what he actually read. And sometimes I'd come across marks of his personality in that. I remember one book, I forgot the author, but it was a book on Western religion. And it talked about Judaism being, you know, the high point of the religious experience or something. And next to it in the margin, he has a red exclamation point. You know, and you could feel him reacting, saying, no, what about Buddhism? And in a commentary by Tilak on the Bhagavad Gita, you see some of his most uh, energized annotations. He has a lot of marks in the text, but next to the text, he'd have no with an exclamation point next to it. So, so you could get through these archival sources, different facts to weave into your story. Now you could always use other facts, but sometimes I think they give you insight and give you new insights into uh, these kind of texts we all have in front of us in the collected works. Well, that's really interesting, Scott. Now, uh, let's go deep into the book. And uh, uh, let me ask you uh, that in your book, you have used terms like appropriation, reconstruction, reconstitution to develop the argument of Ambedkar as a rhetorical pragmatist. Can you please explain what rhetorical pragmatism means and why do you refer to Ambedkar as a rhetorical pragmatist? Yes. I mean, first, let's talk about rhetoric, because that's a like pragmatism, a term that, uh, you know, sometimes is shrouded in ambiguity or confusion. And so what I mean by rhetoric is really the art of persuasive speech, you know, and it doesn't just it doesn't mean lying or flattery. These are ways uh, philosophical opponents of the rhetorical tradition will often, you know, straw person it, you know, mischaracterize it so they can defeat it. So so what rhetoric means, uh, you know, is the choices we or a rhetor, a speaker or writer makes in creating the argument and the text that they think they want a reader to hear. So there's an American scholar from, I don't know, a few decades ago, Donald C. Bryant, who had a wonderfully pithy way of putting this. Rhetoric is really the art of adjusting people to ideas and ideas to people. You know, when you think about it, that captures the core of what Embedkar was doing in many cases. He was crafting this speech for this audience. And then another audience comes along or another group of people most likely will buy this book. He crafts those arguments or other arguments in a different way. So that's what I mean by rhetoric, the idea that we have choices to make in how we put our arguments. We just don't put the argument in, in pure reason, let's say. Uh, so, so how do you talk about conversion, let's say, 
It differs in what way emancipation for a Dalit audience. It differs in terms of annihilation of caste for an upper caste reformist audience. And so, so rhetoric is this aspect that I think has been overlooked in Embedkar's story. And so, so you know, one thing I think that many scholars take to studying Embedkar is that he is a, a thinker that has one philosophy in his head, you know, one image of the world, and that each speech or each essay kind of reveals a, a piece to that larger puzzle. And that piece can go seamlessly with other pieces. And I think this is not that useful, you know, because you, you can look at a rich thinker like Dewey or Embedkar, and inevitably there will be changes in their thought over time. There will be contradictions or things that have tension going with other things at any one time. And so I really think a rhetorical approach to Embedkar centers the question, you know, what audience is he speaking to in this text? Or what audience does he think he wants to reach? And how's he trying to adjust the arguments to that audience? So that's kind of what I mean by rhetoric. And the pragmatism angle comes in, look at annihilation of caste. You know, I have a whole chapter where I, I believe I've, you know, engaged the whole range of echoes or quotations that are not explicitly uh, you know, noted as coming from Dewey, but they're appropriated from Dewey nonetheless. And I think it's the, the most comprehensive account of that wonderful speech in uh, that chapter, you know, at least in its Deweyan angles. And in that speech, right, Embedkar explicitly quotes Dewey twice. And he says, you know, one of those quotations is absolutely important. It's, he talks about Dewey, on the schools, right? He talks about Dewey on Reconstruction, you know, and Dewey says something along these lines that, um, you know, society doesn't have to transmit everything from its past, just what's useful. It can leave off the dead wood of tradition. You know, and in the middle of that quotation, if you look carefully, you know, this is one thing I've really learned about in Bedcar through this process. You know, there are simple ways to read them that just, you know, you know, you could just kind of replicate and say again and again, and there's a use to those perhaps. Uh, but, you know, you need to pause at some of these moments. You know, you need to pause, like, you know, think. So, so this moment here, I paused. I said, what did he, what did Embedkar leave out at the dot, dot, dot in the middle of that Deweyan quotation? And if you look at democracy and education, where that quotation comes from, sure enough, you see one or two sentences from Dewey that talk about the schools. You know, and so for me, that was a very important moment. The, the quotations on Reconstruction, but Dewey mainly put emphasis on schools as reconstructing what's useful in society to transmit to future generations and what's not so useful for present problems and what can be left behind. Now, for Bedkar, that wouldn't work, right? Because ed- formal education in India was as caste-driven as social matters. So he couldn't just say, send, uh, you know, his fellow Dalits to certain schools where they'd be segregated or not, you know, caste could still be reproduced in those conditions. And so, so what does he do though in this paragraph? He literally reconstructs John Dewey on reconstruction. So he leaves out the parts where Dewey talks about schools and he renders Dewey's own words to be more about society in general and what it takes forward and values and what it leaves behind. And why doesn't Bedkar do this, of course, is simple. And it's right there in Annihilation of Caste, right? He, you know, and Bedkar's target in many ways are these, you know, millennia old texts, the Shastras, some parts of the Vedas, etc., that uh, many Hindus would consider incredibly sacred and as divine in origin and as sanatan or timeless in their truth value. 
And so Embedkar, you know, whatever one thinks of his arguments, Embedkar thinks those texts are inherently connected to the caste system in its repressive mode and that we need to get rid of those, he says. And so, so what you see him doing is he's using parts of Dewey, retasking them, revising them, reconstructing them to legitimate a certain way of arguing against these age-old, timeless, unchangeable, unquestionable texts in Hinduism. So you see reconstruction there, and you see reconstruction as a method of rhetorical argument. You know, how do you use a source like Dewey? Do you have to honor Dewey the same way that his enemies are honoring age-old Shastras? You know, Ambedkar says, no, you can pick and choose what's of value in the Shastras, let's say, or in a tradition of a culture, let's say, or in Dewey, let's say, and use those in the most effective means possible to meet your current challenges. You know, so that idea that focus on focusing on the present challenges and not just honoring tradition to honor tradition is very pragmatist in origin. But you see how Dewey and Ambedkar differ because of the problematics they're dealing with. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. That's interesting, Scott, the way you're talking about what makes Ambedkar a rhetorical pragmatist. Uh, you discussed about how uh, Ambedkar was retasking Dewey to rethink the questions of caste and uh, how uh, his approach and his thoughts were actually adjusted into a certain kind of vocabulary uh, so that it appeals to masses precisely because he was a great leader at the same time. And uh, it's it's also because of his question on uh, his own praxis, because he felt that somewhere the intellectual uh, bearing has to come out to public and it has to bear in the practice and in the process of annihilation of caste. So uh, I, I second you on the thoughts of a rhetorical pragmatism that you discussed. Now, let me come to the next question. Uh, so to what extent, Scott, do you think or uh, do you add credit to Ambedkar's philosophy emanating from his lived experience and his sharp critical engagement with the available historical evidence and artifact? In fact, in the beginning of the conversation, you talked about Du Bois and Jane Adams and their lived experiences. So Ambedkar too had his lived experiences. So to what extent do you add credit to that? And uh, do you feel in any way uh, that discussing Ambedkar's life through the lens of due and pragmatism is a reductive or narrowly positioning of Ambedkar from diverse set of thoughts that he engaged in his lifetime? 
Yes, I mean, this is a very important question. And I think, you know, some of the people that are uh, most critical of my project have judged the book by the cover and think that, well, pragmatism is one specific thing. And Embedkar is a very important and unique individual. And I am reducing this unique individual to that one specific thing. But, you know, I I get into this as early as page five in the book. And I I make great, you know, I, I take great labors to, you know, say that, look, there's no essential core to pragmatism. And the term of pragmatism itself is not a closure of discourse. It's really a creative new opening, and it might open other ways to think about Embedkar as well. So I'm very skeptical when people, you know, immediately think that Dewey and pragmatism is one thing. Like I said before, uh, you know, Dewey had 8 million words in his collected works. That's not one thing. There's no one core to that. There's no heart to that thought in terms of one doctrine. Uh, you know, Embedkar himself had a very complex. Now, sometimes we can talk about Dewey's pragmatism as a singular thing, and that might be useful. You know, you can't just say he's complex and let's not talk about him. But, you know, you have to realize that that's a contingent choice of you, the scholar, you, the speaker. So, so this is one thing that I find fascinating, um, the essentialism. You know, and I think about it, right? We tell so many stories in the scholarship of Embedkar as X, you know, something. Embedkar as a Dalit. Embedkar as an Indian. Embedkar as a politician. Embedkar as a lawyer, practicing lawyer. Embedkar as a socialist. Embedkar as a Buddhist. Some people try to argue that Embedkar was a Marxist. So, you know, there's all these kinds of stories we tell, you know, and some of them are, you know, they, they make you think about them in a different way. You know, I didn't know he was a practicing lawyer arguing in front of judges, you know, but so that, that scholarship, you know, it opens up something new to Embedkar I didn't think before. Uh, but, you know, it's silly to say that, ah, oh, you're reducing him to a lawyer when you write an article on him as a lawyer, uh, you know, and, I, and as a Buddhist, right? I mean, if I talk about him as a Buddhist, does that mean I exclude his early legal practice, which didn't have much to do with Buddhism? So, so I, I find it uh, problematic when we essentialize Embedkar's essence. Clearly, he was a Dalit, you know, and so any story that leaves out aspects of him as a Dalit, of, you know, formerly untouchable, uh, you know, these are stories that are probably leaving out some important facts. Any story that doesn't mention his Buddhism is, you know, probably leaving out something. You know, maybe, maybe there's a usefulness to saying, let's just focus in on his law, law practice and leave aside his Buddhism and someone else can cover that. Okay. So, so, you know, one thing that I've tried to stress in my book is that no one has told the story of Embedkar as a pragmatist. All the scholars point at some relationship between Dewey and Embedkar, but they don't give any details. And, you know, I want to say, why do we arbitrarily shut down that line of thinking? You know, so some books write, many chapters on Embedkar and Gandhi, you know, and that's fine. If you want to know about that connection or those differences, that's the book for you, you know? And so my book is, is aimed to be the book. If you want to know more about Embedkar through a pragmatist frame, read this book, but you know, many more books are going to be produced and are being produced where they don't mention Dewey for more than one paragraph. And I'm totally fine with that. So, you know, so think about his Dalit experience. Obviously, his Dalit, you know, his experience, the, his experience of the harms of untouchability is incredibly important. And that's part of what makes his thoughts so unique. And, uh, you know, this is this features in my book to, to a great extent, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, he's just a pragmatist would mean he's just looks like James or just like, just looks like Dewey. No, he's Embedkar. And so if you look at his thought uh, through the lens of pragmatism, you start to see how Embedkar is modifying certain things like democracy that so many people write about, including Dewey. 
and he modifies them with this struggle against caste oppression. And to get even more specific than that, he modifies what he saw and underlined in Dewey's writings on democracy and education into that context of caste and caste oppression. Now, we have to watch out in making Ambedkar a prisoner to his own history, right? He clearly is a Dalit thinker, but he's not just a Dalit thinker. He clearly is an anti-caste philosopher, but he's not just an anti-caste philosopher. Why would I ever say that? Well, look at his some of his final works on Buddhism. The Buddha and his Dhamma is uh, his beautifully reconstructed view of what Buddhism has to say to other global and globalizing forms of thought like communism or Marxism. So, you know, you get this idea that Embedkar, you know, thought caste was one of the most important problems democracy was facing, but it wasn't the only one. So his thought is incredibly rich insofar as it speaks to why caste is not democratic. And he, it also speaks to why Buddhism can be a usable religious approach to instantiating or making real social democracy. So what I want with my story of Ambedkar as a pragmatist is not closure, not saying stop talking about Buddhism, stop, stop talking about Kabir or Tarde or Seligman. If someone wants to write a whole book on Kabir and his influence on Ambedkar, I'll be the first one to buy it. Or Seligman and his tax policy and Ambedkar and his tax policy, I'll be the first one to read through it. Uh, but if you want to know all the details we can find and dig up on Ambedkar and Dewey's thoughts, you know, I, I want this book to satisfy that kind of reader. So that's what I mean. Uh, and there's also this kind of conceptual story that lies behind this. I, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's something that has a connection to the Indian tradition, right? Because, you know, think classically speaking, you know, in India, if you were a Nyaya adherent or a Vedantin, you believed in certain doctrines and dogmas, and you had to defend these against rival schools. You know, that's something that's not really in play when we talk about pragmatism. James had great disagreements from Dewey. Dewey had great disagreements from James, but they, you know, Dewey would think James and he were closer than, let's say, some of James, uh, you know, some of James's analytic uh, philosophy enemies, let's say. So, so at any rate, uh, you know, the schools were not so uniform or defense-oriented. I think that might be part of the background. You know, when I say Embedkar was a pragmatist, someone thinks that that's the same as saying he's a Vedantin who can't be an adherent of Patanjali, let's say. Or So, this, you know, it's a, it's a frame of looking at certain facts in his life. That's how I want to position it, not like this is all he is. Yeah, that's interesting, Scott. In fact, uh, in your book, you have uh, carefully crafted Ambedkar's philosophy with his lived experience, his dual pragmatism, as well as with the historical artifact through which you can actually explore uh, the the Ambedkar's thought and his philosophy. So I, I think uh, the, the, there has been a, a, a shift and there have been moves from uh, history to lived experiences to pragmatism, which is very interesting. Uh, so, uh, Scott, to our next question, and uh, this is pertaining to something that you've discussed in Chapter 5. Uh, can you please explain or and reflect on what is Dewey's idea of democracy and education, and how had Ambedkar, quote-unquote, reconstructed it? Yeah, Dewey's Democracy and Education is a phenomenally important book for Dewey. In 1930, he wrote a little autobiographical essay, and he said, if you want to have the best summary of my whole philosophy, if that's even possible, he says, look at democracy and education. So, so Dewey recognized this as a 
as a powerful part of his thought, and it was an enduring part of his thought. And Embedkar, the student, zeroed right in on this book. Now, everyone assumes that Dewey was developing these ideas at Columbia when Embedkar was there, and then that's where Embedkar encountered this book. This book came out in 1916, right when Embedkar was concluding his Columbia classroom days. Now, that's that story is not exactly true. Again, if you dive into the facts and the details and the archives, uh, you can see, uh, you know, as I have the, the notes for those classes that Dewey was teaching, they didn't have anything to do with education, especially formal education. Uh, and if you look at his books, you see that Embedkar owned, I found four copies of Democracy and Education. Two are older editions, 1916, and then another one is 1925. That 1916 edition that Embedkar signed and dated and indicated it was from London in January of 1917. So he bought that book of Dewey's in London when he had moved on from Columbia. So again, the picture we get is he gets Dewey's psychology and some some exposure to Dewey's political thought at Columbia, and then he gets some exposure to how education and democracy fit together upon reading Dewey later on. So in that book, you know, this is a great introduction to Dewey's thought. Uh, You know, you see how habits matter and how schools are ways of shaping habits to be more intelligent and adaptive to our social environments, our environments where we have to deal with others who think like us or don't always think like us. And democracy is about getting the right kind of habits so the individuals matter in groups and the collection of groups that form a democratic community. So you get this beautiful vision of formal education and democracy. And all along, Dewey says, experience itself is educative. So education doesn't just mean what happens in a boring classroom, let's say. So, So you get this kind of neat view of how education is a wide topic in Dewey and how schools especially can help produce the kinds of citizens that democracies need. And in Dewey's case, not just produce people that are going to work at a factory, you know, and, and do a good job. So, so you know, he, he sees a wide role for education in the American context. Now, Embedkar sees this text and he sees his problems in India, right? India is not worried about robber barons or capitalistic monopolies. It's worried about things like independence. It's worried about things like rights of individuals. It's worried about things like caste, which can be outlawed, but you know, which still could survive as customs and mental prejudices among individuals. So Embedkar kind of reconstructs parts of democracy education, not all of it, but takes parts of it and weaves them into his argument, especially in Annihilation of Caste, and turns this into kind of a harsh critique of the religious customs that underlie caste oppression, the division of individuals into this lower class or this larger, you know, this more valued, higher class based upon birth. So, you know, Embedkar loves that text, but loves it with his own purposes in mind. So for instance, one echo of that text, everyone who's read Annihilation of Caste has read, is from Dewey's Democracy and Education, where, you know, Embedkar and Dewey both say, democracy is more than a form of government. It's primarily a mode of associated living, of conjoint communicated experience. And Bedkar would echo that same phrase in one of his radio speeches in the 1950s where he opines on democracy. But you, you see what he's getting at there and what Dewey's getting at. Democracy is more than constitutions or votes or people in Delhi or Washington, D.C. Uh, it's about how we relate to our fellow humans and community. Do we see them as less than us? Do we see them as enemies? Do we see them as benighted and out for evil? You know, or do we see them as people we have to learn to get along with and form bridges to? 
not as people to overcome or disempower. So Ambedkar has this beautiful view of democracy that he extracts from certain parts of Dewey that he creates by resisting or ignoring other parts of Dewey. You know, and so this is the complex story I think that's there if you bother to think about Ambedkar and what exactly he saw in Dewey as useful for his own purposes. You know, and so caste is something that's incredibly anti-democratic in Ambedkar's reading. You know, and Dewey didn't know that much about caste or didn't make it that big of a part of democracy and education, let's say. It's interesting, Scott, that you have actually brought into discussion and highlighting of caste. In fact, in your book, you have elaborately discussed Ambedkar's key work and highlighting of caste through a pragmatist lens. In fact, you argue in your book, and I quote, that the text is the text and highlighting of caste is not discursive container of abstract argument. Rather, it is a rhetorical artifact that is establishing conversation with Dewey pragmatism. Uh, can you uh, also briefly explain what aspects of Dewey pragmatism is reflective in the text? Some of it, which you've already talked through the lens of democracy and education. Anything uh, more that you would like to add to that? Yeah. And, you know, when I say it's a rhetorical artifact, I mean, one important aspect of it is who it was aimed at. You know, who was it meant to persuade and what choices did it make to do that act of persuasion? So obviously, Annihilation of Caste is one of the most important works for understanding in Bedkar. Uh, and it can be read in so many ways, you know, and so I choose to focus on the parts of it. I think they're very important parts, but the parts of it that engage Dewey's thought. You know, so when you see Embedkar talking about Plato in there, oftentimes that's using echoes from democracy and education. And I talk about that in my chapter. I mean, Dewey talked about Plato as having a certain sort of class system. Embedkar read Dewey on Plato as talking about caste. And so you see this interesting kind of appropriative story at certain parts. Uh, but let's back up a second. I mean, you think about the the text, it's a it's an interesting text, right? This was meant to be a speech <clears throat> as the presidential address to the Jatpat Todak Mandal, which was a small group up in Lahore of uh, anti-caste reformers, but they were still what you'd consider upper caste. So, you know, so these folks were fairly friendly to Ambedkar. They were not Dalits, but they were, you know, they're pointing the right direction, I think. So what's fascinating to me as a rhetorical scholar is Embedkar goes maybe over the top, you know, maybe to extremes to have a very shocking message in this text, right? I mean, he, he says, ah, you know, Hindu scriptures need to be dynamited and the Shastras need to be destroyed. And you know, so he, he goes to a, a kind of a shocking extreme. Then he, he tries to backtrack a little bit by saying, well, I mean to destroy religion of rules, not religions of principle. And, you know, he leaves openings for these reformers to go beyond just interdining and try to reconstruct Hinduism, let's say, as a religion of principle. Now, one thing I try to emphasize in this chapter is, you know, there are parts of Annihilation of Caste that are, you know, echoing Dewey, but they're not just Dewey. So, for instance, that there's a paragraph on principles and rules in moral thought. That's clearly and undeniably an echo from the 1908 edition of Ethics, that book called Ethics by James Hayden Tufts and John Dewey. And, you know, Embedkar owned two copies of that. He owned two copies of the 1910 British reissue of that book. One was signed by his, you know, his uh, guru or his, his helper, his supporter, K.A. Kaluskar. And he probably got it when Kaluskar died. 
But at any rate, you get this kind of retasking of that distinction, which is an important part of Dewey's kind of critique of religion in the West. But it's not, you know, it's more aimed at people like Kant that had a moral law that told you exactly what the right thing to do was. You know, so that's the philosophical battle Dewey's fighting. So Embedkar takes that simple distinction and says, look, can, we can analyze religions with it per se. You know, we can look at religions as giving us specific concrete rules that are so specific that you can't deviate, uh, even though the times change, even though the context change, even though our desires change. And so he says, you know, we should look at these things instead as trying to enshrine principles, flexible intellectual means to adjust ourselves to our environment, to get what we want. So principles become a flexible tool that philosophies or religions can handle. And so, so Embedkar kind of focuses on his goal, creating a religion of principle, one that's adaptable enough that it could create the sorts of communities we want and not so rigid that we just have to be beholden to it, whatever the consequences in our communal life may be. You know, and so Annihilation of Caste, that's kind of part of the pragmatist reading of it is, you know, how he thinks about the flexibility and the contingency of things like religions or things like theories of the world or things like philosophy, right? I mean, typically we think of philosophies as, is it true or is it false? Is it the correct account or is it not? Uh, but, you know, pragmatists, including Embedkar, think of philosophies as choices, and some of those choices can be better or worse in terms of adjusting us to our fellow humans or our environments, natural or social. So, uh, you know, you look at annihilation of caste through that lens. And again, there are other lenses to look at annihilation of caste, but you start to see what Embedkar might be up to with his evocations of democracy and his connection of it to religions and his hope for religions of principle. One other thing I'll mention very briefly Dewey oftentimes is unsatisfying, including to me, insofar as he doesn't want to give a timeless grounding for moral behavior. Uh, you know, and so he says growth is the only thing we aim for. And what you see in Annihilation of Caste is Embedkar bring in some other values that aren't timeless, that aren't eternal, they aren't in the mind of God, but they can help guide us. Fraternity, equality, and liberty. Now, he first heard those those values, I believe, in a side comment Dewey made in 1916, March, in the lecture notes. But Dewey didn't make a big deal of those values. And Bedkar clearly did. So again, you see his pragmatism is not just an echoing of Dewey's. It's part of an evolution. It's part of this global story. That's interesting, Scott, uh, the way you have talked about how Bedkar's thought evolved through uh his text, like Annihilation of Caste. Now let's come to the conclusion of your text. Very interestingly uh, and significantly, your book ends with a discussion on Ambedkar's vision of Navayan pragmatism. Can you discuss why and how do you see connection between Ambedkar embracing Buddhism and Dewey pragmatism? Uh, in fact, there are several concepts like Dhamma, Pradanya, Sangha, etc., which is very innate to Buddhist philosophy that evolved around 400 BC. Do you think uh, Dewey paradigm is a coerced just juxtaposition to the essence of Buddhism that Ambedkar is trying to embrace? That Ambedkar was trying to embrace. You know, again, I, I, you know, it harkened back to the remark I made earlier, you know, is pragmatism one set school or doctrine? No, it's not. And, you know, think about that Adlerblum recollection, 
And this is what one thing I try to tell a lot of my critics. I say, well, look, you know, I think it's you that's saying it has to be Embedkar is a pragmatist or is a Buddhist. But if, you know, Adler Blum's recollection is pointing at Embedkar, and I don't see anyone else she could be pointing at in the 1910s uh, or beyond, really. You know, it ha- you know, what we get is a vision of Embedkar is trying to synthesize these two things, combine them, and combine specific parts of them. So, for instance, you know, in that recollection, Nirvana, you know, this this Indian student who's fixated on untouchability and who, you know, is interested in Dewey's philosophy, he wants to, you know, leave aside Nirvana as the primary goal of Buddhism and bring in some goals, you know, connected to democracy. So there, you know, that's a fascinatingly new way of looking at what Embedkar is up to in Buddhism. And you look at Buddha and his Dhamma, the wonderful reconstruction of the Buddhist, you know, gospel or Buddhist doctrine in the 1950s. You know, Nirvana makes about four appearances. It's not a essential term to that text, uh, you know, because it's, you know, I think Embedkar would see it as largely an individualistic pursuit. And what you see instead in that text is Embedkar reconstructing the story of Buddha the Buddha's life and the concerns of Buddhism to be those concerns of democracy. You know, so again, Adler Blum's recollection, I think is important to remember someone looking for a bridge between Dewey and democracy and Buddhism. So not looking to replace one with the other. So there's no competition between these two things. And, you know, what I see in the 1950s, and really my book doesn't exhaust this period. I, I plan another book just focusing on the evolution of Embedkar's Buddhism, because I think when you talk about his Buddhism, you're talking about his pragmatism. And you talk about his pragmatism, you're pointing at things that he's doing with Buddhism. So these things are integrally linked. And again, I don't find it that useful for someone to say, ah, Buddhism is one simple thing pragmatism is one simple thing. Now let's choose between them. So so what you see Embedkar doing in the 50s, right, is what he said the Buddha gave liberty to his followers to do in a 1950 article in Mahabodhi Journal, right? The idea, you know, Embedkar says there, the Buddha gave liberty to his followers to chip and chop at his doctrine. You know, think back to 1936, the annihilation of caste, quotation of Dewey, where Embedkar says, you know, referring to Dewey, societies can choose what dead wood to leave off and what to continue. So there's this reconstructive urge, even in engagement with Buddhism, you know, and this annoyed many Buddhists of his day, right? Some of the early reviews in 1959, 1961 were incredibly harsh. So again, Buddhism is not just one simple thing. So Embedkar takes certain things and emphasizes it. And so this last chapter of my book is meant to, you know, it's really aimed towards people like, you know, Western scholars like me who say, well, how can I incorporate Embedkar into my classes? I teach a class on intro to philosophy, which has different people at different points in the class. I teach a class on comparative philosophy. You know, you know, these kind of people that think like that, how can we incorporate Embedkar into you know, someone who teaches a class on American or pragmatist philosophy? Should I include Embedkar? So that last chapter, I give a wide, general-level view of Embedkar's philosophy as a form of pragmatism. And again, I admit there are a lot of things that I don't include in there. Other people will give a reading of him as a primarily Buddhist philosopher or a socialist philosopher. That's fine. There's a use to those kinds of ways of pulling out the fact patterns. Uh, but what I try to do is give a very wide view. And so, so in many ways... 
looking at my book as a whole, you know, I try to give something for everyone. The second chapter of the book is incredibly detailed, goes through day by day what Embedkar heard in Dewey's classes, according to the lecture notes I found from those exact classes. You know, and that I think is absolutely important because so many people talk about Embedkar's education, but I don't think anyone out there, no one I've read, has been able to get into the classes. No one's found lecture notes of, of Lasky that Embedkar heard on this day or that. So, so I, I look forward to other people dredging up these kind of documents that get us into those classrooms. So, so my book starts with that kind of historical detail. And by the end, I want to paint a, a broad picture, uh, you know, like based on those facts, but goes a good distance from those facts on Embedkar's philosophy and its most general strokes. So again, other people can emphasize other fact patterns and tell other stories, and that's part of the excitement of all of this. But I think there is a story that can be told about Embedkar specifically relating to Dewey and those classes and those books, a historical story. And then from those facts, a kind of general story you can tell about what he would mean if you want to talk about him as a pragmatist philosopher and put him into classes, let's say, in the West as that kind of thinker. Not every class in the West is on Embedkar thought. So you have to fit these figures into our existing stories. And so so one thing that excites me about Embedkar, and really Embedkar is one of those topics that has changed my life and changed my scholarship at the same time. You know, I write on many things, but they don't really reorient the direction of my future writings. But Embedkar has been one of those thinkers. And so, uh, you know, when I teach classes on comparative rhetoric, I bring Embedkar in. You know, when I teach classes that talk about pragmatism, I bring Embedkar in because he is part of that global evolution and changing line of people that have been influenced by what they see as valuable in earlier pragmatists and what they reject or ignore from earlier pragmatists. So I think that's a valuable story to get out there. Definitely, Scott. I think I second you on that. And uh, in fact, your book has very intensely discussed uh, Ambedkar's thought and Dewey and Pragmatist thought together. And it's very important uh, work because it has developed Ambedkar as a philosopher and a thinker besides uh, talking about him as an anti-caste leader. Today, when Ambedkar is misappropriated and misread to fit into a prefixed agenda, it's important to look back into intellectual biography and what were the intellectual paradigm through which his thoughts actually evolved. So I, I think your book is a very, very important intervention in doing that. Well, thank you. And thank you for helping me get word out about it. If anything, you know, people can like it or not like it, but uh, it's incredibly new. And I think it sheds a lot of light on the specific facts and details of the Embedkar Dewey connection. Thank you, Scott, for the talk. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for including me in this wonderful series of podcasts. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.